You're listening to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today, we return to the monthly series, Back to the Future, in which we discuss the renewed interest in historical food preparation methods. Our topic today is heritage cookbooks and forgotten cooking skills. It's my sincere pleasure to introduce Darina Allen, author and owner of Ballymaloe Cookery School in County Cork, Ireland. Welcome, Darina. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me, Peggy. It's just a sincere pleasure for me. I've admired you for so long, and I know the listeners after our show will look into your books in Ballymaloe Cookery School and fall in love with it as I have. Darina, you've spent your life in food, and you have made some really important international contributions to food education and to food advocacy. When and how did your passion begin? Um, I'm the eldest of nine children, actually. I was brought up in a country village uh, in the Midlands of Ireland, in County Leash, a little village called Callahill. And my mother actually loved to cook. We had a kitchen garden, we had our own hens uh, and quite a lot of our own food. We had a Kerry cow for our own milk every day. That was my norm as a child. And as I said, mummy loved to cook. She made bread every single day. Uh, That would have been Irish brown soda bread. And um, we, you know, went to school in the little village school, but we ran home for lunch uh, every day. And uh, which was what I now realize was really, really important. Uh, You know, that must have been the foundation to a great extent of all of our health, being able to have good food both at lunchtime and in the evening. This was my norm as a child. Food was all around me. And as far as I was concerned, we just ate what was in season and what came from the garden and the food of our local area, you know, at that stage, I was born in 1948, I'm 72 now. And uh, so basically, you know, it was a treat at that stage to go to the shop and get fig rolls or there all kinds of funny new convenience things began to come on stream. So they were sort of treats for us in the beginning. And then we thought, oh, hang on a minute. They don't really taste as good as what mummy makes, you know, um, but there was a sort of novelty value. Anyway, so I think uh, it was part of my childhood, and and that's, I think, where the passion began. That's just such a wonderful, almost poetic description of your origins. And I think there are some rural listeners that in Canada here that have probably some similar backgrounds. And uh, what we're trying to do is bring back that recalling of how good it actually tasted and how we were creative and worked and lived within the seasons. And so... That's such an inspiring background and a new um, way of looking at food even today. And I absolutely love, Darina, what you do, as many people do across the world. And Ballymaloe's concept of a flourishing food system is, I think, really important. And can you please share with us Ballymaloe's approach to food as a way of life? Well, just to tell you a little bit about, uh, we pronounce it Ballymaloe, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And it's Ballymaloe means the town's land of sweet honey. And in Ireland here, a lot of the place names go back over 2,000 years and would usually reflect a particular attribute of that particular place. So, in other words, around here, they must, the honey must have been particularly good uh, from the bees. And uh, so, and also, we're down on the south coast of Ireland, east of Cork, and we're in the middle of a 100-acre, the cooking school here, and there's a country house hotel and inn as well which was the sort of mother house that my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, my father-in-law, Ivan Allen, opened to the public, oh my goodness, in 1964. 
It was the first country house hotel, what you would call in, uh, in Ireland and maybe almost in the British Isles, I think. So we live at the cooking school, um, is, which was established in 1983 in the middle of the farm here, uh, is in the middle of this hundred acre organic farm, uh, quite extensive gardens, about 10 acres of garden, um, and a lot of edible garden. And we also have an acre of greenhouses. So, uh, and we have a little Jersey herd of eight or nine cows and we have a little micro dairy. So we make our own butter and cheese and yogurt. We have uh, some heritage pigs, which, uh, you know, live a happy life running around out in the field. And then they make a little trip into butcher and then we celebrate their lives with lovely bacon and uh, charcuterie and so on. We also have about 600 hens. So, the scraps from the morning's cooking at the cooking school go to the hens and come back as eggs a few days later. Uh, so, you know, honestly, Peggy, we're very lucky because uh, we have a very good growing climate in Ireland all year round, pretty much. Even in the winter, things still grow slowly uh, and we use the greenhouses as a protected garden. But we often, from now on, we will often sit down to a plate of food where everything uh, on the plate came from the farm and gardens, including the milk and the uh, and the cream and the butter and all of that, or else if it doesn't come from the farm and gardens, uh, basically, it can't, you know, we then source it locally as far as possible. And then, of course, we have produce from all over the world, spices and all of that. Uh, but and we don't. This is not something we kind of go on and on about. It's just the way we are. It's just basically the way we always were. And funnily, now students come from all over the world and have had done for a long time. Farm to the fork. These are all new phrases, of course, all new uh, words that were, you know, we've been doing it for a very long time. As I said, it's just the way we live. Uh, but now there are terms for all of these things, farm to fork or uh, something to plate or whatever. Uh, so anyway, that's where I feel so fortunate to live on a farm uh, and in gardens where we can produce so much of our own food and actually show our students actually how the food is produced. Uh, and where it comes from as well. In fact, on the very first day, the first thing I do is I run my hands through the soil in a wheelbarrow outside one of our dining rooms out in the fruit garden. And they're all standing around me, you know, um, on the first day, a little apprehensive, not knowing what. And so I run my hands through the soil and I say to them, remember, this is where all our health comes from. This is where our energy, our vitality, our ability to concentrate, everything comes initially from the soil and the health of the soil, the health of the plant, the health of the, the animal and the health of the human are all totally connected. And I'm quoting Lady Eve Balfour there, reminding us that we're totally dependent on the four or five inches of soil around the world for our very existence. And they're looking at me and they think, oh my God, we didn't say anything about this in the brochure. Uh, but I have to shock them out of thinking that food is something that comes wrapped in plastic on a supermarket shelf. I need them to think about how it's produced, where it comes from, the breed, the feed, the variety, and all of the things that go into making really nourishing, wholesome, health-giving food. So anyway, then the first thing we do actually is the first people I introduce them to, the gardeners and our farm manager, and then we go down to the, uh, the gardens and the greenhouses, and the first thing we show them how to do is how to sow seed, and then how to plant a plant into the ground. And it's one of the most important lessons we teach them for the whole 12 weeks, because I can tell you, if you've ever sown a seed and waited for it to germinate, oh my God, the excitement. And then it takes three months to grow carrots or beets or whatever, depending on the time of the year. And these scales fall from their eyes and they suddenly realize 
they begin to understand why people worry about food security. If something happens, and boy, have we seen unexpected things happen in the last couple of years, you can't just spirit food onto a supermarket shelf. They then realize how um, important it is to have the skill of growing something yourself. You know, it takes three months, as you know, to grow something like that. And how ridiculously inexpensive it is a lot of the time. How can somebody sell a bunch of carrots or something for a $1 or $1.50 or something after it's taken so long. So we're not paying the real price of food. So they'll never complain about the price of food again if they grow something themselves. They'll want to hug every farmer they meet. Very important things that you said. Everything that you said, I think, is just so insightful, but really the role of the land and that yeah. it is that it is precious and that yeah. in, in Canada we do actually have endangered areas with grasslands we think often of different parts of the world there's endangered but we have Canadian grasslands in danger and then all of the species but also this um trying to get away from this instantaneous notion of food that we get it instantaneously purchased and then we microwave it or we do whatever and certainly some people that's better than nothing but to be reminded, I think, in today's world, when there are many types of advancements, that there are still some dependencies that we have, like the land, the germination process or a period for food, that those are things that um, Mother Nature is still taking care of to some extent. We need to pay attention to, know about, protect and support. And as you said as well, the farmers, one of the uh, series coming up, we're going to be looking at the Canadian food dollar and just really how little of it does go to the farmer. And crusading forward every day, working the land and providing the food. And I think those are really incredibly important messages that really talk to why our food heritage is very important. After the break, we'll hear more about the renaissance of historical food preparation methods from Darina Allen, celebrated author and owner of the Ballymaloe Cookery School in County Cork, Ireland. Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980CFPL and 980CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. We are speaking with Darina Allen about family cookbooks, food heritage, and forgotten cooking skills. Darina, you're a significant contributor to the slow food movement, which was formed in part to prevent the disappearance of local food cultures and traditions. In their arc of taste, there are groups trying to preserve not only food items, but food preparation methods that have been lost. And why should we care about such things today? Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, it's really, really important. Years ago, our mothers, grandmothers and so on, passed on the cooking skills to us in our home as they were cooking day in, day out. We all learned. I learned. I don't remember ever being taught how to make a loaf of soda bread. It just was happening every day. I just saw it going on around me. And so this is something that in a way, uh, you know, our, our ancestors and our grandmothers and everything, they spend so much more of their time and their income on sourcing food and uh, and making food because they knew, they knew deeply that our food should be our medicine. They knew that if they didn't feed the family uh, nourishing, wholesome food, it didn't have to be expensive, it didn't have to be fancy food, just had to be just simple, nourishing, wholesome food, fresh in season. They knew that that would keep them healthy and uh, build up and boost their immune systems uh, to resist all kinds of things uh, during the, the the more challenging months of winter and so on. We've kind of lost that a bit. And 
uh, boy, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic ought to be a big wake-up call uh, of, you know, to many of us to reset the button of how we've been, you know, treating the nature and the, and the earth with such gay abandon. I mean, it's like we're totally detached from it. We are not detached from it. We are totally interdependent. Everything is interdependent. So it's, and basically it's absolutely essential in all of our countries, including Ireland, that we get cooking re-embedded back into the school curriculum for children right from kindergarten onwards right through secondary and what you call high school as well. Uh, I'm sure there are many schools uh, now where actually wonderful teachers are having school gardens and also uh, teaching the children how to cook, but it needs to be embedded in the national curriculum. That would be a, a game changer. It, in the, when you can cook, you can make a delicious, wholesome meal out of very inexpensive ingredients. I, I agree. And it, we do have a glimmer of hope in Canada, in the province that I'm in, Ontario. We have before uh, working through the legislative process right now, Bill 216, and it's called the Food Literacy for Students Act. And it will require all students from grade one to grade 12. So that's elementary school and high school to have food education, experiential learning, hands on. And, and we're working now to make sure that it's not um, you know, just a little fragment in a health uh, course that it is its own curriculum. It's integrated in and the rest of the nation is watching to see what happens. We do have a national food policy underway right now. One of the initiatives is a national school food program. So we don't have the details of that, but I, I'm encouraged by those actions and I'm very hopeful that we get those things through and see all the benefits that that will bring to, uh, to us and as an example to the world. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, certainly leaving it, um, integrating it into the uh, public education systems. But there's a part of your Irish traditional cooking cookbook that you included by food historian Dorothy Cashman. And she talked about Ireland's culinary manuscripts. Now, the context here is Ireland, but people across the world were keeping handwritten manuscripts of recipes that were for uh, certain times of the year or for weddings or for funerals or for different events. And um, I'm wondering if you could just tell us more about this process of looking into handwritten culinary manuscripts. I love that title and how people can start to look for those things in their own area or, or some takeaways from that learning experience. Can you tell us more about that, Darina? Um, well, uh, Dorothy actually is a past student of the Ballymaloo Cookery School as well. So, and I hugely admire the work she has done. She actually uh, concentrated on a particular point in history uh, and, and, and in certain families in, in County Kilkenny. You know, I think the first thing to do, I suppose, uh, there are two things. One, if you have a mother, if you have a grandmother or great grandmother or even your mother, ask, uh, start a conversation. Uh, have you got, did you write any recipes down? Did, did your mother pass recipes down to you, et cetera, et cetera? Because in lots of families, particularly in the grandmother's, great grandmother generation, there weren't, so, there weren't cookbooks. There were very few cookbooks. There weren't even many, uh, there weren't even many articles in magazines at that stage. Although you will find in some of these little manuscript cookbooks kept in families that there are little cutouts from newspapers as well with recipes pinned in. Uh, but they ask if there is, does anybody know of anything that's in the family? Otherwise, the other thing you can do is go to the libraries, of course, uh, and some of the, if they have a culinary uh, section, you may well find that people have donated uh, some uh, family um, little scrapbook cookery uh, recipe uh, scrapbooks to it, and you might find some real treasures 
uh, there as well. In Ireland, our National Library has a whole collection of, of things. And in a lot of the, uh, the Irish families, which go back maybe six, seven, eight hundred years in some cases, uh, for example, they're in Burr Castle in County Offaly, that family have wonderful records which have been kept from one generation to another and wonderful recipes and also it's a wonderful social record as well because it's amazing that in the uh, 1800s uh, in that family you know they also kept little invoices from the local shops and it was unbelievable the spices that you could get in the middle of Ireland in a local shop at that time uh, well you probably would get the same now but I can tell you when I was a child you could get maybe cloves and uh, uh, and pepper in a white ground white pepper in a little pot that was it but it was incredible what of course the food of the cabins the poor was quite a different thing to the food of the great houses but at the same time and and, a, and also there's if you go back far enough very few people would have actually been able to read and write i mean obviously the educated word uh, and uh, some oftentimes the cook didn't read or write so the it was written the handwritten recipes in these manuscript cookbooks would have been written by the, the mother family um, and basically would, would have been dictated by the cook. Um, so I think this, no, but I, I start to ask some questions, but apart from that, if there is nothing, start now. Uh, every house should have a little copy book or a little notebook or something and, you know, just write down the recipes and then they can be passed on to here in Ireland, we, I always say this to families as well, uh, to write them apart from that to your children uh, when they're going, uh, when they're leaving home, going to university or uh, whatever, that they can have a little a little uh, notebook with some basic recipes in it. But apart from that, to record the food that was eaten in your house and in your locality. Uh, it's a wonderful, it's amazing how quite quickly it becomes like a little historical document. It's wonderful. And the family's own history, um, as you say, and what a wonderful gift going off to your new home or to school or at your wedding to receive this lovely handwritten collection of family recipes that you grew up loving. And now you can mm. adapt a little bit and make your own. Recently, my niece did, I thought, an amazing thing. My, I, my two grandmothers, um, uh, one who was born in Scotland and the other family was from England and they made butter tarts. We were in the same region, same area in Canada, and very different handwritten interpretations of butter tart, right from the pastry to the filling. And she recently made both. And we just couldn't have been happier as a family trying both of these variations of butter tart, debating over which was better. Um, and she didn't disclose the difference in ingredients till after we'd tested them. Um, and so we were just so, it was just such a wonderful time for our family to experience not just a bit of the past, but a bit of our family's heritage. Yeah. Thank you very much, Darina. We are all looking forward to your new book, which is going to be out in September called Darina Allen's How to Cook. That's such an exciting title and I can't wait to see the content and I know that listeners will as well. It's available through Amazon and coming out in September 2021. Thank you, Darina, for our conversation today, for all you do and provide the world with both inspiration and a tangible example of a flourishing food system. Well, thank you for what you do and spreading the word and all of that as well. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me, Peggy.
And I really admire your work and the way of life that we all can reach and achieve for ourselves through not only your good example, but really as we join others across the world who want to do the same thing to really find a new standard of living. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Darina Allen, author and owner of the Ballymaloo Cookery School in County Cork, Ireland. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about? How could your family introduce more homemade meals? Something to do? Try using a forgotten cooking skill, making your own salad vinaigrette or vegetable broth. Next week on Food for the Future, we'll return to the monthly series Food for Thought as we discuss what households need to know about the Canadian food policy. Our guest is Dr. Evan Fraser, Professor and Director of the Arell Institute at the University of Guelph. I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of the weekly show, Food for the Future. Thank you to our platinum-level sponsors, Burnbray Farms, Eggs for Life, and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980 CFPL.ca.